Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. What we have... In the book of Matthew is a recording of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. That was the primary focus of the book of Matthew. As you read through the book of Matthew, you will see several times where Matthew will write so that it would be fulfilled which was said, that it would be fulfilled which was written. And you see this in verse 22, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. You see, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. He wasn't a sudden change in the theology of mankind. He, he wasn't a sudden idea that God got on the fly. Jesus was, is, and will be God's plan. His plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, it is all bound up in Jesus. Which is why scripture refers to our Lord and Savior as the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. God created man knowing full well that man would rebel against him in sin. And so as God created man, God also built the plan of redemption. Hence, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And when man sinned in the garden in Genesis 3.15, God said that he would put a division between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the seed of the woman would crushed the head of the serpent, but the, but the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Mm -hmm. That was a foretelling of Christ. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks. And as you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament points to Christ. It points to that salvation. It points to that redemption. Brother Wayman sent me a picture this week of uh, the painting of the blood on the doorpost in the, in the book of Exodus. And and the uh, caption read that he didn't look to see who was inside. He just looked for the blood that was on the doorpost. Amen. That's a picture of Christ. Because yes. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't say, now, do I want to save this guy? Is he worth it? No. He, he looks for the blood of Christ applied to the doorpost Amen. of our hearts. Okay? Yes. It's all a picture of Christ. Amen. And in the Old Testament, we're given a couple of prophecies concerning the birth of Christ. The yes. first... And we've studied both of these over the past uh, couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Isaiah seven fourteen that says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And our passage today shows that this is a direct fulfillment of that verse. Mm -hmm. 
The sign given would be the virgin birth. The sign in Isaiah 7, 14 was given to Ahaz, an evil king, to bring him to a decision of either faith or rebellion. And we studied that. Emmanuel means God with us. That in Christ, God dwelt among his people, loved his people, and went and laid down his life for his people. John 1, 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So you have the Christmas story in John chapter 1 as well, as Brother Jim pointed out here a couple of weeks ago. And then we have Isaiah 9, 6 that says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Christ would be the child born unto us, that there would be witnesses and a record of his birth. And there are, there are, uh, there are records of his birth. There is a written record of his birth. We have it here in Matthew chapter 1. We have it in Luke chapter 1. We have record of the birth of Christ. And, and there are witnesses, the shepherds, the, the wise men, uh, Mary and Joseph. There were witnesses. Okay, so Jesus, and by the way, the witnesses, that, that, that goes a long way. Why did Herod send his army into Bethlehem to kill all the children two years and younger? He wanted to make sure he killed the Christ because he didn't want to give up his throne. Why was Herod worried about his throne to the point that he would commit the mass slaughter of innocent civilians? Because he knew the time was right. And everybody knows the time is right. Everybody knows that it's about time for the Messiah to be born. It's about the time for the Messiah to arrive. And then these wise men come from the east and say, we're here for him. And he says, uh-oh. See, Herod wasn't just doing a preventative measure, although he was that evil that he would kill an entire village just on a, on a whim. But he knew what was going on. Yes. And so do you think that people suddenly somehow forgot about that mass slaughter? Now, there's, there's probably a memory of that. See, Jesus, Jesus was not born undercover where nobody knew, and he didn't just come out of nowhere. This was an event. Mm -hmm. This was something that happened. Mm -hmm. He was a child born unto us. He was the son given unto us. For unto us a child is born unto us, a son is given. Jesus said in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What did that only begotten son do? He died on the cross for our sins yes. to pay our sin debt. Yes. Isaiah 7.14 gave us the sign. Isaiah 9.6 told us what he would do. The New Testament records the fulfillment of both. In Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25, we see the birth of Jesus and we see the fulfillment of these promises that God made so many years ago. And God keeps his promises. Mm -hmm. And in looking at these promises and looking at the promise that God kept, I want us to look at three things. One, I want us to think about the significance of the name of Jesus. Because it is significant. The name of Jesus is important. The apostle said in the book of Acts that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. The name is important. We're going to talk about why the name is important. We're going to talk about who Jesus is. And we're going to talk about what Jesus did. So first, let's look at the name, Jesus. Jesus. The name Jesus is the English transliteration of the Greek, Jesus, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name, Joshua, or Yeshua. And so what you have here is you have a name drawn from the Old Testament name, Joshua, 
And the name literally means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Some translate it, the Lord saves. I'm not going to argue. The Lord saves. The Lord is salvation. It means it's the very nature of who he is. It's the very nature of what he does. It's, it's his primary motive in life is salvation. The Lord is salvation. Salvation doesn't come in any other. There is no alternative forms of salvation. There is no alternative source of salvation. There is no happy alternative to salvation. The Lord is salvation. He yeah. is it. Yes. People want to, there's a growing movement in the world today. There's, there, there are religions popping up that are saying that Christianity has been wrong all these years and that Jesus is named you really have to go back to the Hebrew, uh, to the Hebrew uh, name of Yeshua or else your faith is faulty. That, that's, that's being taught. And first of all, if that's the case, then we've got a problem with the writing of the four Gospels because they were written in Greek. Amen. <laughs> and so they used the Greek form of the name, Jesus. Yeah. And then around 1600 and something, we translated to English and we got Jesus. Yeah. That was 400 years ago. 406 years ago to be exact, 408 years ago, y'all forgive me, my math is a little off, nobody amen that, um, y'all think that God would have let his son's name be profaned by the people that bore his name all these years? Be careful with stuff like that, whenever somebody comes out and says, I discovered a deep truth that the entire church has missed all these centuries and unless you follow my deep truth you're in trouble watch out for that guy Amen. okay that's right. so i'm gonna that's 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 off to the side there that's um that's a side trip on this little tour we're taking this morning but i want to talk to you about the name jesus about the name joshua in the old testament we see foreshadowing concerning the name of joshua there are two high-profile men in the Old Testament that went by the name of Joshua. There was Joshua, who was Moses' first lieutenant, and then there was Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. A lot of people don't remember the second Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, but he's pretty significant. If you read Zechariah chapter 3, you see some pretty significant stuff there. All right, so there's Joshua, who led the people of Israel into the promised land. You know, God promised Abraham in the book of Genesis. He said that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. And he even gave a time frame of 400 years. And we see at the end of the book of Genesis that they were going into Egypt. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we see that 400 years was passed. And God sent Moses to pull them out of Egypt. And God told Moses to take them into a land that he would show them, a, man, a, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, the, the, the promised land. And Moses led the Israelites right up to the edge of the promised land, and they held a business meeting. That can be bad news. And they sent 12 tribes into the, 12 tribes, they sent 12 spies into the promised land to spy it out. And 10 of them came back and said, we can't do this. And two of them said, yeah, we can. Joshua was one of the two. They said, yeah, we can. The other one was Caleb. 
And so the people refused to go into the promised land. And as their punishment for their lack of faith, God told them that they would not go into the promised land. That everybody who was 20 and over would die. And only those 20 and younger in the next generation would be allowed into the promised land. Moses himself was not even allowed into the promised land. He was allowed to go up into the mountain and look over into it, but he was not allowed to go in. But God had still made the promise of the promised land. He had still made the promise of Canaan. And so he used Joshua to fulfill his promise of taking the people into the promised land. And likewise, it is Jesus who fulfills God's promise of salvation, redemption, and taking us into his kingdom. Joshua called the people to repentance and faith. At the end of Joshua's life, when he gave his, his final farewell speech, he said, Choose who, this day whom you will serve. If, it is a, if you find it to be an awful thing or a terrible thing to serve the Lord, then you choose who you're going to serve. Yeah. Whether it's the gods of the tribes that used to inherit this land that God took the land away from, or whether you will serve the Lord. Yes. And then Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He called the people to repentance. Yes. When you read the ministry of Jesus Christ out of the four Gospels, what do you read Jesus doing? He's calling the people to repentance. The Pharisees said, Why does your master dine with sinners and publicans? And Jesus said, They that are whole don't need a physician, but they that are sick. The Son of Man came to call sinners Amen. to repentance. Yes. And that's what Jesus did. And so Joshua in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Yes. Likewise, you see Joshua the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3 is a fascinating passage of scripture. You can read that where you're sitting now. Or you can read that on your own time sometime. But the Bible tells us in Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah saw Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, wearing filthy garments, mm -hmm. and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. Now there's a, some heavy symbolism there because the high priest represented the people before God. He interceded for the people. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Yes. Amen. Right? Amen. And as the priest stood before God... And Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3 stands before God. He stands before God in filthy garments. This is bad news. If somebody shows up to church in filthy garments, we know that they're poor, that they're having financial issues. They're, you know, they're down on their luck. We pray for them. We help them out. But for the priest to have dirty garments, he stood before the Lord representing the people. How dare he have dirty garments? He, he was actually forbidden in Scripture from wearing dirty clothes. If his priestly garments got dirty, he had to go and change. Yes. But here the priest stands before God wearing dirty, wearing dirty garments. That dirt, that filth, represented the sin of the people. Amen. Amen. And Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Yes. And the Bible says that God said, the Lord rebuked thee, Satan. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Ordered a change of clothes for Joshua the high priest and set a fair mitre. That's that big hat that they wear upon his head. The Lord, like the high priest, intercedes for us 
the Lord Jesus Christ represents us before God. But when you look in Zechariah chapter 3, and you see the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord wearing filthy garments, you see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hanging on the cross where he is bearing the sins of the entire world. And in doing that, he cleansed us from sin. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also those of for the entire world. Amen. You see, that name Jesus, that name Joshua, the Lord saves. God is salvation. Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our leader. He is our intercessor. When the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, that's exactly what the angel was saying. Name him Jesus. The promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, who will redeem the nation, who will save the people from their sins, who will cleanse this land, who will set everything right, who will fulfill the promises of God, that's who your fiancé is going to give birth to, Joseph. So don't fear to take her to be your wife. Everything's fine. You are right now the most blessed man in the history of the world. Yes. The name Jesus. God is salvation. It is his nature. It is who he is. It is what he wants to do. He wants to redeem. That's the name. Now we're going to look at who Jesus is. Verse 18 tells us that Mary was found to be with child of the Holy Ghost. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Yes. You see, what happened was God formed Jesus in Mary's womb. Yes, he did. And so that's why we call Jesus the only begotten son of God. God's got lots of children. He's got lots of adopted sons and daughters. If you know Jesus as your savior, the Bible tells you you've been given the spirit of adoption. You are adopted into his family. You're his adopted son, his adopted daughter. But God only has one begotten son. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you can imagine the only begotten son, the one created in the image of the Father, with the Father's Spirit, the one that is God in flesh, he's special. Yes. And he's precious. Amen. And he's the heir. He's the one that's going to inherit the kingdom. Yes, he and he's perfect. Yes, he and he's lovely. Yes, he and Jesus said, God so loved the world mm-hmm. that he gave his only begotten son, yes. that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, not only is Jesus the only begotten son, as mentioned in John 3.16, but God loved you so much that he wasn't going to have Jesus in his glory without you. He's the only begotten son that God so loved, but God so loved you to give him over for your redemption. 
And that's who Jesus is, the only begotten Son of God, the child born unto us, the, the Son given. Verse 23, a fulfillment of Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus is God in flesh. Yes. I couldn't have thought of a better time for Brother Jim to start our study in the book of John on Sunday mornings during Sunday school. Amen. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, yes. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Christ. Amen. And John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. In other words, this divine being gets a body and lives the human experience. And that is profound because God's desire has always been to dwell with us. You look at the creation back in the book of Genesis. Adam is created and What's he doing in chapter 2? What's Adam doing in chapter 2? Adam and God are hanging out in chapter 2. And God is having Adam name all the creatures of the world. Giraffes and water buffalo and platypuses and wallabies and and everything else. He's, He's coming up with names for all of them. Dog. You know, I mean, he came up with some pretty cool names. And God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates woman. And what do you see? You see man and woman and God. Amen. And there's a close fellowship there. Yes. One that was lost in chapter 3 when they decided to eat of the fruit. Because now they're not, when God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they're not saying, oh, God's here. Let's go tell him what we did. (laughs) No, they're like, oh, we need to hide from him. All right. He might see us wearing these fig leaves and figure out that we don't know how to sew yet. <laughs> and so what happened? That fellowship with man was lost. Yes. But God poured out the plan to restore that fellowship. Amen. And you look at everything else. It's all about restoring fellowship where he can dwell with us and we can dwell with him. What was the point of the tabernacle? When God ordered the building of the tabernacle, what was the point of that? What, it wasn't so we could go to church somewhere. It's so that God could dwell among his people. We solidified that with the temple during the days of Solomon. And the Bible tells us all that we are, our bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost. Or yes. tabernacles of the Holy Ghost. He wants to dwell among us. But in order to do that, he had to redeem us from sin. Amen. Because God can't fellowship with sin. It's just, it's, there, there, there's a scientific equation to this. You can't fellowship with that which is in rebellion against you. So you have to cleanse the rebellion. Then you can fellowship again. And so that brings us into what Jesus did. In verse 21, the Bible says, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Amen. He shall save their his people from their sins. This means rescuing them from the sin nature. When Adam ate the fruit, he became a sinner. He became a rebel. 
And he developed within his nature the tendency to sin against God. Yeah. And that tendency has been passed down through the gene pool. Yes. Generation after generation after generation. And we're getting pretty good at it. We're getting pretty good at sin. I mean, there have been technologies that have been lost over the years. You know, the Dark Ages, we lost all kinds of technology in the Dark Ages. We, we had made advancements as mankind that we lost when society fell and we burned all the records and the wars and everything else. We, we lost a lot in the Dark Ages. We're rediscovering a lot of this stuff now, all right? And we're getting good at smartphones. We're getting good at technology. But when it comes to sin, we, we never had an interruption in learning how to sin. We got pretty good at it, and we got pretty good at it quickly. You read Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel, Abel gets banished, Abel moves across the river, starts his own city, starts having children, and they start having children, and they all started having some pretty interesting ideas. One guy says, I think I shouldn't have just one wife, I think I should have two. What did I say? Then Abel gets banished. Okay, Cain kills Abel, Cain gets banished, Cain starts his own ungodly society. Hear what I mean, not what I say. That's <laughs> yeah, one of the perils of getting older is um, mind misfires. And so you wind up with a very ungodly society. And then in chapter 5, you've got the, the so-called godly lineage. But in chapter 6, the sons of God beheld the daughters of men, and they saw that they were fair and they went in unto them and took of them wives, whichever they chose. Oh, yeah. And so what happened in Genesis chapter 6 is not talking about angels marrying mortal women. It's, that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about was those who had been raised up in the godly line, they looked across the river at the, at the sinful society and they said, that there looks kind of fun. We should go try us some of that. And they got so good at sin that God had to bring about the flood. And as soon as we come off the flood, what do we do? We start the sinning again. Yep. We've got, I mean, we have perfected this ark. Oh, yeah. We have made it readily available, readily accessible. Whatever your mind can conceive, you can make tangible in the palm of your hand right in front of you. But the blessing of salvation is that the Lord can rescue you from that. That he transforms you from the inside out to where you are not driven by those sinful desires anymore. You still are tempted and sometimes you fall, but you're not driven, you're not owned by it. He shall save his people from their sins. He will rescue them from the sin nature. He will redeem them. That means to pay the penalty for our sin, which is what he did on the cross, to restore them. That means to restore you and to transform you into the person he intended on you being. Rescuing us from the wrath of God. That was the primary mission of Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came, to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Yes. And how did he accomplish this? 
John chapter 10, verses 11, 7, and 18. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. See, this is what's amazing about Jesus. He actually had the power to choose his life. If you could choose your life, what would you choose? If God were to set you down in front of an Xbox and say, create your character, create your persona, create your backstory, and go live it, what would you do? You get to, you get to pick the time frame that you live in. There are video games you can decide whether you want to live in colonial times, modern times, ancient times, and you can build an empire. Do you want to live in ancient times, medieval times, Victorian times, modern times? Do you want to be rich or poor or somewhere in between? Do you want to be a ruler or a business magnate? What do you want to be? Christ had the power to make those choices. We didn't. We were just born into whatever we were born into. Christ had the power to make that choice. And look at what he chose. He chose the life being raised by a carpenter. Living a life of poverty, a life of service, a life of teaching and ministry, which would end when he would lay it down on the cross to take on the punishment for the sins of the world. That's what he chose to do. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He not only laid it down on the cross, but he dedicated his entire life to the sheep. John 10, 17, 18. Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Yeah. This commandment have I received of my Father. Our Lord had the power to lay down his life, to give his life to pay for our sins. But he also had the power to take his life back up. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He took God's punishment on the cross for our sins, for the sins of all men. He died. He was buried. But then he rose again the third day. And in rising again the third day, he conquered the death. He conquered the grave. He opened the gates of heaven so that we have the expectation and the hope of eternal life. And we know that's possible because he lives. Not only that, but because he lives, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God where he makes intercession for us. He advocates for us. That's what he does. It's amazing. If I could choose my life, what would it be? Jesus chose his, and that's what it was. Yes. Even up to the day of death. If you knew that you were going to die at 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, how would, what would you do the rest of the day? You know? But Jesus knew. Yeah. And what did he do? He continued to serve. He washed feet. He administered the Lord's yes. Supper. Yes. He, he taught his disciples. And then he surrendered himself to go to the cross. Amen. And Jesus preached the gospel. And then he did the gospel. You know, we look at the Christmas decorations. I like Christmas lights. We're losing them. And that's partially my fault. Just don't seem to have the energy to get out and decorate the house. You know? Um, I remember, though, in East Texas, we had these towns that would just, and, and we do that out here, too. San Saba's got a really good display. 
Um, you go to these places, they got Christmas lights, and it's just beautiful and wonderful. I love this time of year. Yes. Love Christmas. Some days, and some days I'm by humbug. Depends on how you, how you catch me, I, I guess. But, you know, when we, when we celebrate Christmas, and we look at the Christmas lights, and we, we say things like, Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's remember who Jesus is. Yes. Because... Satan doesn't want us to celebrate Christ at all. <laughs> Satan would love nothing more than to turn this holiday into a commercial smorgasbord of retail activity. He'd love that. But if we must say Jesus is the reason for the season, Satan's also perfectly okay with us keeping the story about a baby. Everybody loves babies. He's okay with us talking about babies. He's not okay with us remembering what that baby did. So as we remember Jesus is the reason for the season, let's remember why Jesus is the reason of the, of the season. It's not just that he was born, but it was because he also gave his life and he redeemed us. And just as the prophet gave Ahaz a sign in Isaiah chapter 7, he said, Behold, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. That means that Ahaz has to make a decision. Yeah. Does he trust the Lord or does he continue doing it his way? That baby in the manger who grows up to be the man on the cross forces us to make a decision. Yes. Do we repent and trust Jesus? Or do we continue to do things mm -hmm. our way? Mm 